Now entering Nerdist.com. Big Pop Fun. It's time for another episode of Big Pop Fun with Tom Wilson. Join Tom as he talks to the artists, writers, performers, and personalities that affect... Uh, that... Well, that he can talk into being on the show. Here's Tom. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Big Pop Fun, the podcast gentle enough to use every day, although I only make one. Now, once every eight months, I open up a little file on the Zoom H4N recorder and do it. Um, But doing my best, folks. I got a guest. How about that? It's miraculous. Well, first of all, hey, the podcast is brought to you by Art. Support art and artists everywhere you are. Please buy a painting, go to a show, tip that kid at the coffee place who's playing, I don't know what he's playing, he's playing Puff the Magic Dragon on the guitar, give him a buck, and help artists wherever they're, because they're they're human beings, and and we have to support each other and keep things live and keep things... um, just connected, you know, like human beings and not all staring into our phones. Anyway, uh, it's also brought to you by my book, The Masked Man. Available Kindle, Nook, iPad. It's me. I run into Clayton Moore, the actor who played the Lone Ranger in the 1950s TV series. We go on an adventure where I'm telling him stories of my life. People have enjoyed it very much. It's on Audible as well, audible.com or uh, from the Amazon store. So check out my book. Check out my paintings at bigpopfun.com. I'm painting. Yeah, I'm painting up a storm, people. So look at that stuff. Anyway, we have a guest today. Um... In the first, uh, Michael Bayuth is a guest of mine back in the 40-something Big Pop Fun. Go check it out, Michael Bayuth. He's an artist and and a, and a filmmaker in his own right. But uh, I knew Mike back at the Comedy Store in the early 80s. Then I worked on um, Back to the Future in a number of films with, uh, with Ted White, who was uh, kind of grizzled tough hombre who'd been in every movie you could ever name especially the westerns of course being from uh, texas and oklahoma uh, and ted was uh, such a nice man but such a, a a piece of hollywood history and and i didn't know i knew both guys and i didn't know that michael bayuth was ted white's son and michael michael said oh tom you're doing a lot of movies maybe you ran into my dad is really what's your dad do he's a stuntman your dad's a stuntman yeah ted white i said Ted White is your dad? Um, So I actually, um, I kept bugging Michael to keep bugging his dad to come on Big Pop Fun. Uh, Ted is now uh, 88 years young and doing fine living. We went over to his house at an undisclosed location in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. But uh, Mike came along with me and Ted... um, Ted really is Hollywood history. He he has um, received a lot of respect awards, the Silver Spur Award, uh, accommodation from the County of Los Angeles. He is um, a pretty amazing guy with a, with an with an amazing uh, life. So I convinced Ted to sit down with me. And, um, the guy was John Wayne's stunt double. Okay, he's stunt doubled for uh, Clark Gable for Cary Grant. For, uh, as I said, John Wayne, for, well, almost anyone you can name, 
He has been a stuntman. He's an actor. He was in uh, uh, a very nice part in Against All Odds in Silverado. It, hey, Ted is Jason from Friday the 13th. You know, maybe you'd recognize him if he was wearing a gigantic hockey mask. That is Ted White. And I got to speak with him on Big Pop. Pop Fun, the podcast, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with um, a very significant actor and uh, and stunt performer in Hollywood history, Ted White. It's Big Pop Fun. I just on my way down to get a haircut. I had to go, I had to let my hair grow. I don't know whether you know this or not. They're getting ready to do a Western TV series. Are they? Yeah, they are. And uh, I went down Monday. I was supposed to go down Friday, and they canceled it to Monday. And I went down Monday and uh, met with the executive producer and the director that's going to do four or five of them. And uh, they want to make it as authentic as possible. And uh, I read the script, and uh, we talked. Uh and I said, well, you know, if you're going to make it as, as authentic as possible, what you need here is the head wrangler. I'll, I'll, I'll do this when you're... You, no, we're fine. We're good. Okay, anyway. Uh, and that, that meeting with them was two and a half hours long. And uh, they're both nice people. I, I, I didn't know either one of them. Uh, they, I was recommended to them from the Screen Actors Guild. And... Uh, and that's because of just experience with on westerns. Well, you know, a little bit, just a little bit yeah. of experience with westerns. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but anyway, uh, and I'm glad to hear that they're thinking to try and make it. What was that western they did where they used every foul word in, in the book? Uh, uh, it was a horrible thing. They, they, it was episodic. Yeah, on uh, HBO. Yeah, Deadwood. There it is. Yeah. yeah. Nothing like that. Uh-huh. They're going to use the words hell and damn, but they're not going to go into that other four-letter stuff and all of that. Uh, they said uh, some of it was used, but uh, we're not using that for effect, which that show did use it for effect. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, the conversation was nice. We, uh, we ended it up, and uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to work, and I said no. <laughs> I don't want to work anymore. I'm done. You know? Yeah. A lot of the old cowboys that I worked with would say that in in westerns like that, or in the olden times, to use such bad language was to kind of, like, a simple sentence said all you needed to say, you know? Telling a guy he was no good, that just meant everything. And, in the, and in the fewest words... That's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, they were very, very economical... If you just looked at a man in the eye and said, you're no good, you don't have to put the F-bomb in there, you don't have to do everything, we've said everything we need to say. That's right, and it's the way you say it, and it doesn't have to be screamed. Uh, well, I worked with John Wayne for so damn long that uh, his technique of telling somebody they're no good was just right to the point and very direct and very simple, and he wasn't screaming, he wasn't yelling, it was just in the same voice that he would use normally all day long. Yeah. Uh, I got. I'm sure you knew Ben. I, I got to work with Ben Johnson a couple times. I worked with him several times. Yeah, I know. And Ben, wonderful guy. But he would go up to the director if there were bad, bad language in the script in his scene, 
And he would just walk up gent- as a gentleman and just say, now, you know, uh, a-, a cowboy wouldn't say anything like this. <laughs> Pardon me? Well, he wouldn't say something like, well, how would he say it? Well, I would say, you know, whatever. I would say this. And all the directors, Sam Peckinpah and all those guys, started to come to Ben, you know, before the scene, going, well, how would you say something like this? And that's, and rightfully so, you know, because he would know. You mm-hmm. know? Ben, I go way back with Ben. Yeah. I go back before Ben ever had a job acting. Really? He was a wrangler for uh, for uh, Disney. They were doing uh, the uh, Zorro night at, what's that big uh, Hollywood Bowl? Mm-hmm. Dean Smith was there. They had the original Zorro, I can't think of his name now, the actor, and the horse on the stage. But back away from the stage on top of a mountain, a platform they had built. Oh, behind the bowl? No. No? To the left of the bowl. Okay, yeah. If you're in the audience, pardon me, if, you're in, if you're in the audience and you're looking... And you're looking straight ahead. You'd have to turn like this to look up. They had another horse and another uh, Zorro, and that was Dean Smith as uh, Zorro. Ben Johnson was the wrangler of that horse. Oh, how about he was that? Making thirty-five dollars. Yeah, yeah. And but I knew Ben before that. Ben was a world champion rodeo guy. Did you know that? Yeah, before, before. he got into the movies. Oh, long before. Did he come out? He like he actually. Like ran cattle for Howard Hughes or something like that. Well, see, and he was a wrangler. Yeah, he came to town. He couldn't get a job, and and so he made thirty five dollars a day as a wrangler. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I don't know on, on that bowl thing. Maybe he made less or more because that was just a shot at yeah. night, one shot. For and, people and, who don't know, a wrangler is the person yeah. who you know will handle the horses yeah. or cattle on a on a movie. The wrangler, mm-hmm. sure. Anyway, I roped. I rodeoed for forty years. Well, Michael knows that. And I met Ben way back then, and he was still he was still roping in jackpot ropings around town here, and he could win three or four hundred dollars, and that was a lot of money to him. Mm-hmm. And that's when I met him. And that night, I never had no idea that he was Wrangler up there, and I went up there to, to cue Dean when to rear the horse. Not now they they could have just as well told, you know, Ben about it, but they said no. Since I'd been in the business, they said Ted, you know the cue, so just give him the right cue when he rears the horse, and the spotlight comes on. And then the horse goes up and his hat comes off, the spotlight goes on. What happens is that the lights go out in the dome and he says, Zorro has left, and boom, goes up and there he is on top of the mountain. So that was the whole thing. In the sure. Nutshell. And I said to Ben, I said, uh, how do you like working in the, in the business? And he said, is this the business? And I said, yeah. He said, I don't care for it. <laughs> <laughs> but, man, there is a, there's a shot Wait of... Wait a minute. Are we recording all this? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, Why on. not? It's no, fun. No, no, no it's fine. Put yeah. I just remember a shot of Ben in, in Wagon Master mm-hmm. where he is coming off, you know, a stuntman would normally do the shot because the horse is a tiny dot in the distance and it that horse is flying over a hill and everything and the and the dust is rising behind the horse. But the horse comes all the way into the shot and at full gallop, Ben just swings his leg over, jumps off the horse, and just runs up to, you know, John Wayne and the guys. Like, they're right over that ridge. It's coming. I was like, wait a minute. 
rewind that shot, would you? <laughs> Let's look at what he just did. I mean, he just galloped the horse from forever. He galloped the horse from a mile away all the way into the shot, and the horse is just running as fast as he can, and he just kind of, you know, whips his leg over, jumps off, and runs up to the guys. Well, you see, when he first broke into the business, he'd wrangle on several shows. So it wasn't like his first day in the business. Yeah, sure. But when he finally got a shot to where he, you know, was an actor, uh, that happened many times. If he was in a, a group of guys <coughs> riding, he was always in front. Uh, ben was very seldom in the back. But if you see some of his earlier movies, he was always in the back because he wasn't a featured player. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But what a great guy. Oh, terrific guy. and I, I don't remember the year. I'm thinking it was 94 or 93. We went to the National Rodeo Finals in Vegas, and Ben was there with his wife, and uh, we were sitting together, and he said, how about having dinner with my wife and I tonight? And I said, we'd love to, and he just had a hip replacement, and we had dinner with him, and uh, I think two months later, he was passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, But what a great guy, and uh, well, he, he was a lover of horses, that was his true love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the motion picture business was another, just another way of making a living, but he was so natural, it came very easy to him. Mm-hmm, he didn't sure. have to work at it. Sure. And that's because, going back to what we talked about earlier, and I'm being a little redundant, uh, you know, that was just Ben Johnson. That's who he was. He wasn't anybody else, just like John Wayne. He was John Wayne. He was that way off the screen or on the screen John Wayne was. He, was, he didn't change. That was him, huh? That was him. That was really John Wayne. Huh. I worked with him. Well, I'm not going to go into that, but I worked with him several times. And uh, at the bar having a cocktail, that was John Wayne. Uh, on the set, in a mad scene, that was John Wayne. In a set where we were doing my love scene, that was John Wayne. Uh, his character only changed if the scene called for it. But normally, he was himself all the way through. And that's what people loved about him. Yeah. And I he think. knew that image, I guess, a lot, huh? He knew when... I mean, I remember t- you know talking to our mutual friend, Walter Scott, who was a very, very young man in the John Wayne movie. And he's in a scene with John Wayne, and he has one line. Sort of like, well, you know, well, at these rates, what do you expect us to do? You're not paying us anything, you know. So he... Put, puts a little, you know, puts a little hot sauce in it. Well, at these rates, what are you supposed to, you know? He, and uh, John Wayne talks, tells the director, is that the way he's going to say it? <laughs> and when Walter's a kid, oh, what, what did I do? Because I think if he says it like that, I'll just punch him right in the mouth. <laughs> like, okay, I'll say whatever way you like, you know. <laughs> I have the same story. I got a call to go to Western Costume. That You know where that is. Sure. Downtown. And... They took me to the green room, which you know what that is, where the, the big stars go in. Sure, I said, sure. what am I doing in there? I usually did a little knockdown back in the back. And the guy said, how big are you? And I said, 6'4". And he said, what are your sizes? And I told him, he said, you'll fit into everything. And I said, oh, I didn't know. I had no idea what I was getting fitted for or anything. I just, uh, Warner Brothers called and said, Teddy, be, that, be down there and so forth. I went down, put the whole costume on me, and I, I said, that's fine, you know. And we left the next morning and flew into... Tucson, Arizona, and uh, I met with, uh, there were two other stuntmen there besides myself. And they said, well, I guess you're getting the big head. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, "Uh, the show. And I said, well, it's not the first show I've been on. He said, it's the first show you've been on where you're doubling John Wayne. And I said, what? (laughs) I had no idea. And I said, am I really? He said, yes, Ted, that's what you're here for. You're doubling John Wayne. 
And I said, my God. And I, right away, I started getting chills and, and getting excited and uh, wondering if I could do what they wanted me to do, you know, for John Wayne. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Howard Hawks, because of my size and the way they dressed me in the wardrobe, made me one of the bad men. And uh, they put me in a black hat with a flat brim, like oh, back in the days when the Mexicans wore their just great brims. But anyway, I walked on the set, and uh, they called me over in the wardrobe and said, here's the clothes, put them on. And I hadn't seen Wayne yet, and uh, I put the clothes on and went over and sat down with the other guys. And here comes Wayne out of the dressing room, and... Uh, I couldn't help it. I stood up, <laughs> and he walked up, and he said, Howdy, kid. I said, Howdy. He says, What's your name, boy? I said, Ted White. He said, Glad to have you aboard, Ted. I said, Thank you. Now, we started filming, and, uh, well, I don't know, we're, we're three-quarters of, oh, halfway through the movie, and Howard Hawks called me over, and he said, Now, Ted, in this scene, the bad guys are on the, out here looking at the jail, waiting for Wayne to come out, and we're going to shoot him. You're one of them right over here. And he said, uh, when Wayne walks up to you, he'll say, nice night. And you say, yes, sir. And I, and I said, yes, sir, Mr. Hawks. I didn't know Howard, you know. Well, I was scared to death. I rehearsed that line 50 times. <laughs> and when Wayne walked up to me, I'm up on a boardwalk, and he's down on the street, so I'm taller than him. And... Before we shot the scene, I asked Mr. Hawks, I said, Sir, or Paul Helmick was a associate producer and first assistant director. I said, would it be all right if I was down on the street leaning against the post? And he said, well, yeah. He said, uh, you don't want to be on the boardwalk? And I said, I really would rather be on the street. And he said, well, is there a reason? And I said, I'm going to be taller than John Wayne. And I said, I don't want to look down at him. He said, that's a good reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, we got ready to do the scene, and I can't tell you how nervous I was. My stomach was fluttering. I rehearsed the line over to myself a hundred times, and when he walked up, and he said, nice evening, isn't it? I said, yes, sir. Yeah. Howard Hawks said, cut. He said, Ted, that's kind of a very meek voice. He said, could you bring it up just a little bit for sound? And I said, yeah, yes, sir, I will. He said, say it just like that. Yes, sir. So we did it again, and Wayne said, nice evening. And I said, yes, sir. That was it. That was my whole line in the whole movie. But I got to know him then, and he played chess, and I played chess, and we played a lot of games of chess together, and we got to be on first-name basis, and he had a couple of fast mounts to do, and he said, do you have a, a one-step stirrup? And I said, yes, sir, they're metal. He said, can you put it on that horse for me? So I went over and put it on the horse. And I said, uh, do you mind if I work that horse a little bit before you do this? Because he had to jump on the horse and ride like hell down to the other end of the street where they had, uh, what was the singer? Dean Martin had already captured him. And uh, he would, they knocked him out and tied him up or something. So he had to really run the horse. And he said, uh, what do you, I said, I'd like to warm that horse up for you. And instead of riding down there fast on a cold horse, that's when they'll buck. Mm -hmm. He said, and he saw a big smile come on his face, and he said, yeah, that's a good idea, Ted. Well, 
that kind of put me in good with him and i've run the horse up and down the street a couple of times and brought him back and uh, we shot the scene and when the picture was over with he he was gracious enough to come up and shake my hand and said it was a pleasure having you on the set and he said i hope we do this again in the future well i thought that was the end of it i thought you know because i knew a guy named chuck robeson had been doubling him for 30 years mm -hmm. chuck was getting very very old then Howard Hawks walked up to me, and he shook my hand and said, Ted, it's been nice having you on the set. And I said, thank you. He said, uh, let me ask you something. How are you hunting? Do you ever do any hunting? And I said, yes, sir. He said, how are you about wild animals? And I said, well, uh, the only wild animals I've been around are deer and elk. And he said, how would you like to go to Africa? And I said, well, I'd really love to go to Africa. And he said, I think I'll take you with me in the conversation. Hmm. Three years later, I was working on the back. Am I going too long on this thing? You're not going too long at all. We just it's just having a conversation. That's oh, all. Well, anyway, I was working on the back lot at Warner Brothers uh, on a Cheyenne, I think. I'm not really sure what it was. And a car came down and uh, went to the first assistant, and I heard him ask, "Is Ted White on the set?" And he said, "Yeah, that's him over there." And he said, "Jack Warner wants him in his office." And I heard that. And a chill went down me. I thought I had done something horribly wrong. Come and got me, put me in a car, took me up. And uh, I never got into Jack Warner's office. I got to his secretary. And she said uh, to the driver, the driver came with me. And she said, you have to take him to Paramount Studios, the Howard Hawks' office. And I'm going, what is going on? And I said, well, I'm tied up in this scene down there. And he said, no, Jack Warner's already called, and that's all settled. When you get back, you can finish whatever you're doing. I, my stomach was turning upside down. What could Howard Hawks want with me after three years? I hadn't seen him, heard sure. from him. Took me over and I walked in the office, and his secretary said, Mr. Hawks would like to see you. And I walked in, shook and Howard Hawks was a tall man. He was six foot three. And uh, he said, well, Ted, it's good to see you again. He said, do you mind me getting you out of work over there? He said, uh, I don't think they want you back. And I said, yes, sir, I have to go back. He said, well, when you're finished, come over here tomorrow morning and sign a contract. We're going to Africa. So that's the story of my first job with John Wayne and what happened afterwards. Mm. And what, what movie was that? That was Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo. 1957. Uh-huh. And uh, I came... Yeah, what was the one in Africa then? You went off to do Africa, the African movie. Well, before I did that, the next picture was Horse Soldiers. I got a call from casting, uh, and that was from Backjack, John Wayne's company, and said, uh, we're, gonna go, we're going down to Tennessee to do a movie called Horse Soldiers, and they want you to come in and read. And uh, I went in and read, and I never heard anything from them, but Three days later, they said, well, we're leaving so-and-so date. So I went down and did Horse Soldiers with him. And uh, when that was finished, I was home, and uh, I got a call uh, four or five months later to do the Alamo. And uh, went down in Brackettville, Texas, and uh, I can't tell you how long I was there. I was there for, it seemed like an eternity. Uh, uh, and a funny story there. All the stuntmen, when we weren't busy, and there were 18 of us down there, we used to sit around and play cards, play hearts, and uh, it was a very serious game, you know. 
And so they kept records of everybody, what they won, what they lost. And at the end of the show, we had to pay off. Well, I got a call from uh, Howard Hawks' office that they wanted me to leave for Africa in five days. Well, there was about two days left of shooting on uh, uh, the Alamo. And I went to Wayne and told him. He said, oh, my God, Ted, Howard Hawks, you're going to Africa with him? He said, so am I. And I said, what's great? I said, "Uh, what do I do? He said, I can lose you. I got 18 stuntmen. Go ahead and leave. So they got a car to take me to the airport. Halfway to the airport, here comes a van, a stuntman named Red Morgan, bless his heart, he's now passed away, was in the van in the passenger seat by the driver. And he's waving, waving, and the car pulled over. He said, you owe $3 to the heart game. (laughs) (laughs) They sent him out on the road to catch you, huh? Wayne sent him out. Oh, Wayne sent him out. Yeah, he said, oh, he's got to pay. And I said, oh, my God, you followed me all the way out of here? He said, yeah. I said, here's the $3. And uh, that was the end of it. And uh, I got back into town and uh, went to Paramount and uh, signed a contract to do the show. And he kept me busy there for a month before we ever left. And they were building traps, and they were building big nets, and uh, I had to bring all my ropes in for roping. And uh, so I was under contract there for that for that month, and then we left and went to Africa. And that was the latter part of 59 and the early part of 60. That was Atari, right? That was Atari, yeah. Mm-hmm. I hate to tell them the other story, but on the oh, airplane. Well, in those days, if you know, as you know, uh, if it was five actors or less, you flew first class. And uh, when we landed in New York, they, I was in first class, and uh, I was sitting on the aisle. And when the plane I got aboard there, because I had to change planes. Uh, a lady and a little four-year-old boy was in the middle seat, and she was on the aisle seat. And as you can see right now, I'm chewing tobacco. Well, I was chewing tobacco then, and I had the script, and I had a paper cup. And I kept the paper cup in my left hand, and I'm reading the script with my right hand. And we'd been in the air four or five hours, and the stewardess come by and said, we're getting ready to serve lunch, put your trays down. So I put the tray down, and I put the cup on the tray and reached down to put the script underneath my seat. When I looked up, the little boy had drank the juice out of the cup. Well, my God, what happened after that was a nightmare, a complete nightmare. He started throwing up all over the place, and the mother didn't know what it was. And, of course, it's all the black, and and she's going, oh, my God, they're screaming and hollering. (laughs) And the stewardesses come, they had three or four stewardesses come running back, and uh, what what happened? I said, and I said, and I was shocked. I I didn't know what to do, and I said, I was chewing tobacco, and that was my cup I was spitting in, and the the wife said, you were what? And I said, I was chewing tobacco. Well, I won't use the words, but they're, Every curse word that any sailor ever knew, she knew them. Mm-hmm. They said, we have to move you. And I said, yes, please do. So they moved me up further up in the first class. She would come and go to the restroom, and she'd walk by, and she'd look at me, and she'd say, you assassin, you no good. Oh, I would shrink in the seat. <laughs> we landed 
Well, we were supposed to land in, in Paris, but it was fogged in, and we went clear to Geneva, Switzerland. And uh, we landed there, and that was a horrible time. The American ice skating team for the Olympics had just crashed and killed them all. Oh, dear. Killed them all. In that and, fog? On the, right there on the landing strip when they were coming in. Wow. The plane is still there and all the commotion. Oh, everything. that you landed in the same yeah. airport? Wow. Yeah. Uh, I came back to Paris, and we were stayed in the George Sank Hotel. Are you familiar with that hotel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a number of things happened that I won't go into at the hotel, but uh, we then, from there, we boarded, and uh, we flew into Rome, and we just refueled in Rome and flew into Nairobi, Africa, and uh, checked into the hotel in Nairobi, and uh, about 4 o'clock that afternoon, Howard Hawks called me and said, Ted, we're having dinner tonight down below, and he said, have you got any dress clothes with you? And I said, yes, I do, and he said, well, why don't you come down and have dinner with us? And I said, I'd, be, I'd love to. So I got cleaned up, went down. I walked in, and I looked over, and my heart dropped. There sit the woman and the baby. <gasps> They're and, on the movie. And the, and the man sitting next to her was the writer of the script. <laughs> she was the screenwriter's wife. Yes. <laughs> and Howard Hawks said, uh, have you met these folks? And I said, yes, sir, I have met the lady and the baby. And the man started laughing. And he said, Mr. Hawks, he said, I won't go into the story right now, he said, but Ted's an innocent victim. Yeah. And he said, Ted, please relax. He said, it's all forgotten. The boy's fine. And now Hawks is not knowing what's going on. And he said, well, what, what's the problem with the boy? And he said, the man that told the whole story of my showing tobacco and Hawks is looking at me and I can see his eyes getting bigger and bigger and he said my god he said uh, any repercussions and she said I don't know but I hope he doesn't grow up showing tobacco oh my gosh well, the- well that's what you get for being honest you should have on the plane you said I think the boy has the plague or something I don't know <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well the husband turned out to be a regular guy uh-huh. the wife and the baby stayed two weeks and flew home but he and I got along great, and he stayed there with us for, oh, three or four months, and then he flew back. Uh, and that was my trip to Hatari. And, uh, now, I would, be, I would be remiss because you have the photos up here of a, you know, I mean, we, people are just listening to this, but it's a, it's a sequence of photos where a rhino on the plains is rushing a jeep and that you're the passenger in. I mean, how how do you get? It, was that a wild rhino? That was not wrangled. That was just out there. All the animals that we captured in Africa, and we did capture a lot of them because that was the theme of the show. We were supposed to be shipping them home to the states for sales for the zoos. Mm-hmm. This was one of the largest rhinos we had seen, and uh, we knew from the beginning it was the opening of the show, and uh, they were constantly looking for a big rhino. We taken uh, a camera car over with us it was built on a flat bed there were no sides to it driver's seat passenger seat and then the bed was completely flat for camera platforms and uh, the one day we were in the bottom of Ngorongor crater and uh, Paul Helmick was our second unit director again and uh, associate producer and he spotted this rhino, and he said, I think that's the rhino we want for the Jeep sequence. 
And he said, how do you feel about that? And I said, yeah, that's fine. That's what I came here for, you know. And uh, so I had another stuntman with me. I only took one man with me over there, and I took a guy named Kerry Lofton, who's no longer with us. And he was the best driver, not in Hollywood, not in the United States, but in the world. This guy had done things with cars that nobody had ever done. And I said, that's the man I want with me uh, when I go to Africa. And Howard Hawk said, fine, and they hired him. So when we got ready to do the shot, he said, now, it's going to be you and Kerry. And I said, no, sir. I, I was talking to Paul Helmick. Howard Hawks wasn't there. He was with the first unit. I said, I don't want him in the, in the Jeep with me. And he said, well, why? And I said, if anything happens and we get hurt, you're going to be left without anybody here to do the stunts. And I said, I'll take one of the white hunters, and all he has to do is drive and do what I tell him, and we'll get the shot. And he said, well, you better talk to the white hunters and see if they're willing to, to drive. <laughs> so I went to them, and they said, well, yeah, this guy said, yeah, I'll, I'll do the driving. He said, uh, uh, that's all I have to do. And I said, yeah. And I said, now, as we drive and the rhino comes at us, when he gets beside that Jeep, turn to the right because that horn's going to be coming up. I'm on the passenger side. And I was doubling Bruce Cabot. Well... You don't have to tease them to make them charge. Camera car got in position. I run the Jeep over by him. We had the driver drive over. He saw us, and the charge started. He was behind us and was coming up like this. And as he was coming up on the left side where I'm sitting, as he dropped his horn, I said now to the driver, he turned to the left instead of turning. He turned, he turned into, into the, the rhino. The horn went underneath the seat and flipped the Jeep. We were in the air about 10 feet, going sideways, end over end. I come flying out. He come flying out. The Jeep rolled three or four times. The rhino circled, and the camera car dashed and got between us and the rhino because the gun I had was a phony gun, and that was the only gun we had. Sure. And uh, we finally got the natives out, and they turned the Jeep back over, and... Uh, Paul Helmick came over to me, and he said, well, that's a wrap for the day. And I said, Paul, we can get that Jeep running. I want to do it again. And he said, Ted, he said, are you serious? And I said, I came all the way to Africa to do this shot. And I said, I'm here now, and I don't want to have to sleep through another night not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring. Now, Ted, if I may interrupt, but that to me is, you know, is stuntman ethic right there first of all it's you're on the job and you know and you're out there to to work and they say well we want you to go out in this car and uh, make a rhino mad and have him rush you and then you know and then i don't know what happens you just kind of have to go okay here we go you know and then you get flipped 10 feet in the air over the jeep and everything and then you come back and go i don't think we got that right let's do it again that's something else well paul was scared to death that Somebody could have got killed and could have, at that time when the Jeep flipped and we went, it could have rolled over on us and, and damaged us or killed us. And he said, are you really sure you want to do it again? And I said, yeah. And the driver said, I won't do it again. So we got another one of the white drivers, the white... Uh, uh, the hunters. Hunters yeah. to do it. And I said, all you have to do is when I tell you now, just turn the wheel to the right and... Uh, we got the Jeep back on all four wheels, and they worked on it for about 10 minutes and got it running again. And uh, the rhino had gone off about, oh, a couple of hundred yards away. So we followed it over in the Jeep, and uh, 
here come the uh, camera car, and we all got in position. Uh, we got a radio in the Jeep, and they said, okay, Ted, here we go again. And I said, all right, I'm ready. Roll them. They rolled them, and we pulled in, and here he came. And that horn, and this is no exaggeration, that horn missed my leg by about two inches. And I had, as you know, in a Jeep, your, your leg's extended, and it's a cutout <clears throat> in the side. In the side, of, uh-huh. I had a blood squid on my leg where they'd sanded my pants down and put the plate on top of my leg and put a squid underneath the balloon full of fake blood. <clears throat> and as that horn came up, I popped it. The blood went over me, the rhino. And the next thing I hear from the radio is, my God, Ted, how are you? How bad is it? How bad is it? And my answer to Paul Helmick is, you don't know good acting when you see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the answer is, uh, did you get the shot, huh? In fact, I have Paul Helmick's book in there, which I'll let you read when you're through here. He got on the radio and called Howard Hawks, and he said, Howard, he said, you'll never believe this. We nearly lost Ted White today. <laughs> And so we went in that night dinner, and uh, Hawks asked me what happened. And, of course, by then he knew that Rhino had flipped the Jeep, and we did it again the second time. And he just looked at me, and he said, you're not going to do anything like that the rest of this movie. Uh, so that was one exciting moment. Yeah, but that's, that's movie making in a shot like that, where you're being rushed by literally a wild Rhino, but you have to keep in mind to pop your bag of blood. If it gets near you, you're not, I mean, I would be kind of all adrenaline. I don't think I'm thinking about the bag of fake blood. I'm just thinking, I got to survive this. Being I, shown, oh. I don't think the time for him to take all that to read that right no, now. No, I just wanted to show him the headline. The Roping of Buffalo. Yeah, uh-huh. this is, I mean, this Roping. is probably one of the main stories. So. Oh, one of your big, big, I mean, the amazing thing is living a life that you've lived, I mean, my goodness, we could be here all night with stories, I'm sure. But now, what's, what's roping a buffalo? Well, we caught a lot of animals, as I've said before. Sure. Again, being a little redundant. Was that on Hatari? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, we, we had caught two of them. And when I say we've caught them, uh, we roped them, and then we threw ropes around the back legs to get them down. Sure. And then we had to take a crane to lift them up and put them in. The truck, but you were you were kind of cowboy roping like no, you'd this, rope a steer, not, but a wild animal. Th- this wasn't being filmed. Okay, uh-huh. none of that was filmed. Uh, so we had him in in the compound because we photographed the compound many times to show what we'd done. And that's part of the movie. Well, the compound was roughly fifty, sixty feet from the main entrance to our compound, and we always had a gate there with a guard on it to not let uh, civilians in. And uh, between that distance of 50 feet, there was a tree stump about four feet high. And I was standing out there with my rope practicing, and I was roping that stump. And uh, there was another tree about 10 feet away from me with a trunk about 10 inches in diameter. And uh, the gate opened, and a car drove in, and the guard at the gate had gone to lunch or something. And there were two women, and uh, they had a baby, and they put the baby in the stroller. And got out and was starting to walk down toward the rhino pen. And this rhino, there was a male and a female. The male jumped that fence like it wasn't even there and started for those two ladies. Now, this is the, a Cape buffalo. I, I mean, you should Not an American buffalo. This yeah. is a Cape buffalo, you huh? Explain that, what a Cape buffalo is, Pop. Well, 
there wasn't anything I could do. All I had was a rope. And as he went by me, I roped him. And I dollied around the tree that was next to me. He hit the end of the rope and went down, but he was up like a cat. Turned and charged me. I went on one side of the tree, he went on the other. I still had the dolly on the rope. He hit the ground again. And five natives at the compound that were working there saw it all happen. They come running up, and after he went down the second time, one grabbed his tail and pulled on it, and the other ones grabbed his back feet. And I let go of the rope, and they took the rest of my rope and tied the back feet up where he couldn't get up. Uh, it was over with. And uh, every day we were on safari out on the Serengeti or different places. And uh, we'd leave the compound and go out. And uh, we'd come back in, oh, I think it was two days later. And we're staying at the Safari Hotel in Arusha, Tanganyika, East Africa, a wooden two-story hotel. And uh, I walked in the bar, and Wayne was there with a couple of our grips. And he said something, you know, I see you got your name in the papers. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I said, oh, yeah, what's that all about? And he said, don't tell me you don't know what it's about. And I said, I really don't know what it's about. And he said, roping that Cape Buffalo? And I said, oh. I said, I didn't. He said, yeah, you did. And I'm not going to go on with the rest of that story. There was more to it than that. But John Wayne is still in my heart as one of the great people of all times. And uh, I don't have anything bad to say about him. Mm-hmm. But when he had a couple of belts in him, he wasn't the same guy as he was when he wasn't drinking. Uh-huh. And there was a little bit of a disagreement. And uh, He didn't that, care for you getting a bit of attention. But let's face it. You go out, you run out on your feet, rope a Cape Buffalo, dally him to a tree, you know, get, get, get him on the ground and everything. That's going to get some attention. Well, it got the attention of the Guinness Book of Records. Oh, did it really? Yes, it did. And <laughs> it's the most dangerous animal in Africa. The, it is yeah, the most dangerous. Sure, sure. The most dangerous animal in Africa, the Cape Buffalo. They will actually yeah. hunt a hunter. They will actually yeah. stalk a hunter. So uh, I had not didn't know it, but Europe got a hold of the story. They wrote a big headline of it, and then they got it back. Nairobi got it back and did a big headline. And then one of the crew found the part of the paper and cut it out and brought it to me, and that's what's framed there. Uh, and then I found out. Two years later, it was in the Guinness Book of Records. How about Cowboy that? from Texas ropes Cape Buffalo on <laughs> Well, it's good to know that John Wayne, the Duke, is much like every other movie star that I've known. A very nice person until someone turns the spotlight from them. <laughs> you know, and then things change. And then you better turn the spotlight back. No, no, no. It's all about you. And they go, oh, okay. I'm back to being a well, decent guy. <laughs> You know, that's let's face it. That's we see a lot of that in town. Uh, Hatari was a very dangerous movie. Mm-hmm. We lost two people on. Oh, really? Movie. Yes, we did. I had hired a girl uh, to double Elsa Martinelli, uh, and she had a lion, male lion that she'd raised from a baby. And uh, in the scene, Elsa Martinelli has to be right close to this lion. So they brought the lion into our camp and put it on a long cable probably 100 yards long. And then they had a chain running from that cable to the line where he had about 10 feet to go between from the cable out. And she took Elsa Martinelli over to meet the line. And uh, they got up close, and the line was clear down at the other end, and she called to him, and he got up and started walking back, and then he started trotting. 
and she said, he's acting so strange. She said, well, step back out of the 10-foot range, step back about 20 feet, and let me get talk to him for a minute. So she stepped back, and the lion got within five feet, and he sprang, hit her right in the middle of the chest, opened her up from her neck to her crotch. The, the woman who had raised it. Yeah. And uh, at that time, our production manager was driving in with a white hunter, and the white hunter pulled a rifle out of the boot from the Jeep and shot the lion up two or three times. I wasn't there mm-hmm. when that happened. But she was already dead. And mm-hmm. uh, they loaded her in the Jeep and was going to rush her back to uh, Arusha. But uh, she she was dead. And uh, it was a horrible time. And that scene in the movie never happened, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we never had the line with Elsa Martinelli at all. And she was a mess. Uh, she couldn't work for a couple of days. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure she, she was, couldn't. She really tore up. Mm-hmm. And the other death in the fam- in, in our crew was one of the White Hunters were driving back from Arusha to, uh, I can't remember the name of the town now, and coming around a road, a curve in the road, a big lorry hit him head on and killed him. Oh. So we had a lot of problems there. Yeah. Uh, a lot of problems. Now, let me, I mean, let me just ask you, Ted, I mean, how you get to the life you've lived. I mean, were, did you grow up here in California around horses and no, everything? No, I grew up in Texas. Oh, did you? I was born in Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And uh, I moved to Texas when I was just a small boy. And uh, that's where I learned to ride and rope. But you grew up around horses. I mean, what would your dad do? Uh, well, my dad had uh, a hardware store for did a he? long time. But he was. But you were on horses because it was yeah. Texas? Yeah. And uh, uh, when I came to California, uh, I bought horses again. In fact, both my boys had horses. And uh, Did you come to California for the movies? Or what, what led you out here? No. I came out here... Uh, uh, at one time, I wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, mm. but I had no training in that. I went to school to Norman, Oklahoma, OU, and played a little football and boxed. And uh, my education uh, wasn't what it should have been because I was more or less into football and into boxing, and uh, I really wasn't studying like I should have been. Because uh, now all those football players at Oklahoma now, they're all Rhodes Scholars now. It's all its all different now. Everything is different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I came out here and went to work for a guy that I knew back in Oklahoma, and he was a manager of a, use, of a, a Lincoln Mercury agency, and asked me if I'd like to be a salesman, and I said, I don't know anything about it. And Anyway, I went to work for him and was selling cars there, and uh, uh, a young man came in to buy a Mercury, and uh, I sold him one, and he was an extra in the motion picture business, and uh, a cowboy extra. Huh. And name was Roy Clark, not to be mixed up with the singer. With the guitar player, yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, that's how I, I met him. And I went so we just found it intriguing. Well, no, I uh, I knew I knew him for several months before he called me one day, and he was working at Warner Brothers and doing a show with Mamie Van Dorn. You remember her, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was a western. And uh, I went over to watch, and uh, and. Uh, I got to come up with his name now. He was president of, of Paramount for some years. Howard Koch, you remember him? Uh huh. Yeah, he was the first assistant on the show. And a cowboy had to roll, ride up on a horse and rope a guy standing on the porch, and dally on the horn and drag him off the porch. Well, the guy tried roping him five times, six times, and never could rope him. And this guy Roy Clark walked up to Howard Koch and said, "See that guy standing over there?" And he said, "Yeah." And he said. He can rope. 
He said, is he in the guild? He said, no, he's a car salesman. So he came over to me and said, uh, can you rope? And I said, yeah, I can. He said, how about going down the wardrobe and getting in a Western outfit and come back up here? And that's what I did. I went right there to Warner Brothers, got a Western outfit, came back, got the horse, and I, I finally found a rope that I liked. And he said, here you go. Well, I nearly killed that actor. Oh, I rode in, roped him, dallied, and jerked him off that porch in the air. I had no idea how to do it, mm-hmm. motion picture-wise. And Howard said, well, we got the shot, but you nearly killed the actor at the same time. <laughs> I said, well, I thought that's what you wanted me to do. And he said, yeah, we got what we wanted, all right. He said, uh, would you like to get in the guild? And I said, well, yeah, I guess I would. So he said, I'll call the Screen Actors Guild and get you in. And he did. And that, no more cars, huh? Uh, well, no, I still worked at the cars because I didn't know I'd ever get a job. Mm, sure. And uh, I got a job working on a picture, and I don't remember the name of it now. Uh, I went there, and they, I was leading a billy goat. For two weeks, I had this billy goat I led around on the set. I used to come home at night, and we were living in a little upstairs apartment. And I smelled like a billy goat. My wife made me take my clothes off out on the porch. It was horrible. And after two weeks, I quit. And uh, this Roy Clark came over and was talking to me. And I said, I know on that show, I watched a stuntman do some horse work, all the horses and rare horses. And mm-hmm. I said, heck, I can do that. So I uh, went to Paramount and went to Warner Brothers and went to casting and told them both I'm a stuntman. And uh, that was it. I started out doing stunt work. Wow. And that led to lots and lots of movies. I mean, did you ever count how many movies? Are you there on IMDb with all? I mean, I don't know if they go back that far, do they? No, they don't. They, uh, the last time the Guild checked, I, I did well over 100 features, mm-hmm. major motion pictures. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it's one day, sometimes it's two days, sometimes it's three weeks, as you know. Sometimes it's four months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did a lot of television as well. In between those major motion pictures, I did television. Mostly Western stuff. Mm, no? I would oh. say uh, on a scale of from 1 to 100, probably 65% of them were Westerns. Mm-hmm. The other 35% were uh, car stuff and uh, well, just everything. Yeah. Uh, it's been a great life, and uh, like I told my son earlier, I've had interviews where people say, would you ever change and do something else? And my answer to them would be no. Yeah. It's the life I've picked, and it's the life I've lived, and it's the life I wanted, and uh, what, I would never change it. What did you do? I mean, is there a time in the stuntman's life when you start, you know, it's an opportunity, it's a decent job for good money. You say, well, I can ride a horse, sure. Well, can you do this? Sure, I'll show up. When, you know, when did it become dangerous for you? And you thought, is did you ever, or did you ever think, is this really what I want to do? Because as you know, you can show up in a day, and it's uh, it's some hairy stuff they'll ask you to let, do. Well, just let me make this clear to whomever's listening to this. <laughs> when I got in that jeep for the Rhino, my heart was beating at a million pounds an hour. I mean, I was scared. I was scared to death, but. There's two things that happen when you become a stuntman. The shot is the most important thing. You're not an actor. You're doubling an actor, and you've got to make him look good. 
no matter how scared you are, no matter how tore up inside you are, that shot has to be done, and you have to do it the right way. On the show that you and I worked on, uh, I won't go into it right now, but there was a shot that was very, very difficult where the guy takes a convertible and puts it to the back of the trash truck. I remember it very well. I know you do. <laughs> he was doubling you, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, no, I was. three guys were doubling me, but they said, the camera's so close, Tom, it's got to be you. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be in the car with three stuntmen. And well, as, as happens a lot on Bob Zemeckis movies, they just go, look, we're pretty, we're pretty close, so you'll have stuntmen around you, but it's going to be you. So. Well, so, yeah, I'm, if I'm acting very casual about all this, uh, let me make it perfectly clear to everybody. I was scared many, many times yeah. to a point where I wouldn't sleep at night thinking about what I had to do the next day. No, uh, I was scared, and, and let me tell you something else, and it may not sound reasonable to you or anybody else listening. You have to be scared. When you're not scared, you shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. You should not do it. Because if you get gallivant and you get to a point where nothing bothers you, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it right. You have to have all your senses about you, no matter how scared you are, to get that shot. Because if you fail to get that shot, it's amazing how fast the word spreads in this small town of Hollywood. No, I was scared. And, and there's many times, now even with the Cape Buffalo, after I roped him, realized that I'd done it, I got scared. When he charged me, I got scared. Uh, I could go on and on about the times where I did not sleep at night knowing what the next day what I had to do. But that's part of the business. And I, and even you as an actor, uh, I'm sure there have been times when you've had two or three pages of dialogue that was without a cut that you woke up thinking about that dialogue. Oh, you don't sleep the whole night before and you're just thinking it's a huge scene with a lot of words. And then, and then, as you know, you can show up and they said, you know, we're taking out this big paragraph, but we're putting it at the end. So then, after you do that, go to the side of the room, then do those three lines about, you know, whatever it is, about, about the animal. Then you, and so your brain, early in the morning, just explodes. You go, I've prepared this whole thing. And they just kind of knocked it over and you said, let's rebuild it in a different way. Yeah, it's something. Yeah, so, no, uh, Scared many, many, many times, uh, more than I can even remember. Uh, I can't remember a stunt that I did that was difficult, that I wasn't scared of, mm. you know, that I, wasn't, I, I had a fear of, yeah. you know. Uh, but that fear, yeah, I think it helps you. It shows the excitement of what's happening at the time. Sure. Uh, and uh, I, I lived that life. I lived for it. I lived for those moments. And today is 88 years of age. My memory's starting to fail a little bit. I go back over a lot of those. Mm-hmm. I sit here in my den and look at the pictures on the wall and think about certain things that I've done, and I still get a thrill from looking at it. Now, when you were starting out, you were getting these jobs and riding horses. Were there people in the movies that had had the experiences before you that you were thrilled to be around? Yes. Like, like, like we talked to you, and you have so oh. many. I mean, who did you meet? Were you like, oh, my goodness, I can't well, believe uh, I, I'm, all the big names that I met, uh, uh, John Wayne, Clark Gable, Victor Mature, Rock Hudson, Fess Parker, I can go on and on. There's so many of them that I met, all those big guys that I doubled. Uh, 
yeah, uh, I was, you know, I was thrilled just to be able to be in the same room with them, you much sure? less to be able to talk to them and then put their clothes on and do their action sequences for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that never leaves you. Uh, that's something, no matter how many times you work with them, when you walk back on the set and you see them again, that same excitement comes back. Uh, and and to sit here and talk about it, uh, it's it still comes back right now. Uh, it was an exciting time in my life. Uh, well, how can I ever forget it? I can't, you know. Sure. Uh, well, you you worked at the top of your industry and your skill set for a very very long time. I mean, you were, you know, you were you were working. I mean, when did you stop working, Ted? I mean, not you know. You're, I mean, no, you're 88 and you're living in your I your stopped. wonderful retirement years. But you were you were working for quite a while. I stopped working four years ago. The, right. Okay, 84 I, years old, and you were working. I did Fast, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. <laughs> Fast and Furious. And you're, we're talking about old John Wayne movies and Hatari. Yeah, working Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Yeah. And what on earth did you do in Fast high and Furious? High speed driving. You did high speed driving mm-hmm. in Fast and Furious. Well, I did another Fast and Furious before that one in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> this was the second one I'd done. <clears throat> And, uh, and what car were you driving? Well, nondescript cars. Yeah, uh, yeah. In Florida, uh, we had, uh, I think we had 15 or 16 stuntmen in police cars on the freeway chasing one car. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going through stuntmen ahead of us in nondescript cars, and we're doing 90 to 100 miles an hour. And so we're weaving back and forth through these cars, and, of course, the stuntman ahead of us, are driving a straight line, and we're doing all the weaving. Mm-hmm. But we're at 100 miles an hour. We had three helicopters in the air, two for the company and one news that we're photographing at the same time. So, yeah, I did that, and then a year later, or was it a year later, a year and a half later, I did Fast and Furious, and after that show, that was it. Uh, no more stunt work. Uh-huh. Well, at 84 years, leave something for somebody else. Now, how... um. Now, I'll let you go. I know you've spent an awful lot of time with me, and I sure appreciate it. But did you, uh, did you find a lot different in movie making now than years ago? Yes. Today it's more technical. Today we've got better equipment. Uh, today we've got, well, we've got better cameras. And today we've got tape that's actually as good as film. Uh, in fact, I've used tape. Uh, I have a small production company of my own called West Coast Productions. And we create major accidents uh, for two of the biggest law firms in California. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, yeah, I use tape now instead of film because it's easier to do and I can do it over and over again until I get what we want. Sure. Uh, I find many things like uh, right now our green screen, we can recreate anything we want. And if you see this latest movie out about the apes, 80% of it is all green screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, <clears throat> with stu- with a lot of stuntmen, and and I think it's a good thing, but a lot of stuntmen or actors on flying rigs, on those yes. kinds of things, yes. rather than in your day, and you'd say, well, Ted, just hang on to this tree until you let go, and then we'll just shoot and we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I, If we start talking stunts, you're going to be here all day, and I don't want to do that to you. Well, yes, I, that would be that would be it would be wrong of me to not say, look, you've done a lot of acting. I mean, straight up acting. You're, you're seen in Against All Odds is great. 
Have you saw that? I saw everyone's well, a lot of people saw against all odds and you were really I mean you were you were a bad guy, you were you were security man, but it was really good work. Not really. Well, as an actor, hey, I know my my way around acting, well, I'm buddy. I'm talking about the acting. Part. Don't make me, you know, take a fake punch. Well, that's you. what we're talking that's what I'm going to talk about. This was with uh, Jeff Bridges, and we were in a real office with no fake walls, and it's very close in there. And uh, the scene opens up, uh, Jeff's standing with his back to the door and with the girl that's in there, and a guy comes running from the open door and dives in the air and takes Jeff by the waist, and they go over a, a desk and into a partial glass window. And back behind the desk is Jeff Bridges. The double that did it with me stays back there. Jeff comes up. Sure, the Texas switch or whatever, yeah. Right. Well, when I went in to do this, uh, the double for Jeff was a very good double. But the room was too tight. And they asked Jeff, would you do it with Ted? And he said, yeah, we'll work. Because I had, before that, I worked with him on Tron. Then I worked with him on... uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Trump. On, on Starman, Starman, you came out and and gave him uh, gave him trouble in Starman, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Well, but but I did Tron, and then I did Cutter's Way, Against All Odds, and then Starman. I did four with him in a row, uh, so we knew each other, and uh, he trusted me as a stuntman. And we rehearsed the fight, and it was a violent fight. Well, if you saw the movie, you saw it. Uh, and in one part where I was throwing one punch. Uh, he went to the kid that was his double and said, could Ted throw a left hand here instead of a right? And he would get me back toward the wall where he had to go faster than if he throws a right. And he said, well, yeah. He said, that'll work. Ted will just throw the left punch. So in the interim, with the director and, and setting the cameras again for the whole shot over again, he never told me. Oh. So when we did the scene... Jeff popped up, two punches, and I threw the right, and I caught him on the point of the chin, mm. knocked him cold. Oh, really? Oh, he's out like a light. Dropped to the floor, and he's doing the chicken kick, and I thought I'd killed him. And uh, I'm right over to him, and in two seconds, he's blinking his eyes and looking up at me, and I'm saying, Jesus, God, Jeff, why? Why didn't he? said, I thought a left was coming, and I said, when was that changed? He said, didn't he, did Gary tell you? And I said, no, he never mentioned it to me at all. Well, we waited 30, 40 minutes, and uh, a knot popped up on his chin, and they worked with that, put some cold compressors on it, mm-hmm. and then we went ahead and finished the fight. And uh, I want to tell you about that fight. That won the first Academy Awards of Stuntman's Motion Picture Business. It did? Yes, it did. For, for that specific fight? That specific fight. Huh. Because it was so realistic, yeah. uh, every piece of it. Uh, well, a lot of people don't realize how much rehearsal, I mean, it's like a ballet, how much yes, rehearsal will yes, go into each yes. and every fight. And the wall that I'm throwing up against, is, it's got pictures all over the wall, and that wall actually shook, because I told him, when we were getting ready to do it, I said, Jeff, I want to put a pad on your back, i got to slam you into that wall, and there's picture with picture frames, and... I said, anything? He said, I don't need I said, yeah, you do need it. 
because the force I'm going to use, and I have to have that force to make those pictures move, and uh, you need the back pad. So when you saw the movie, that wall actually moved. Mm -hmm. and it really did move. Uh, and then from that, uh, the next thing I did with him was uh, Starman. Where you came out and gave him, you, you popped him in the in the face, right? Great fight. He was, yeah. Great fight. Great dialogue. So, yeah, I've, I've had a few acting parts, uh, only because I never took any drama lessons or anything, but I've been around that business for so many years and watched some of the great actors of all times, and uh, I've worked showed with David Lean and Howard Hawks, John Ford, and name them the best actors in the business and if you don't learn from them you're never going to learn from anybody mm -hmm. so i didn't do any great big major major parts but small parts the opening know. scene of romancing the stone right romancing the stone yeah. which happened that yeah yeah i remember that yeah that was a money thing more than anything else uh, i went in for a reading and uh, i was the only stuntman there and uh, two days later, they called me and said, we want you for the part, and it's going to be a week's work. And they offered me $1,200, and I said, no, no, I'm not going to go to Utah for a week for $1,200. Uh, and I'm not sounding like I make a lot of money per day or anything like that, but as a stuntman, 90% of the times when you go in, as you know, you go in on $840 or 750 at that day, and then whatever you did is above that, so making $1,000 was no problem. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, what do you want? And I said, I want 2500 Well, we can't pay it. And I said, fine. So two weeks later, they called me back and said, well, the director wants you, so you got the 2500 But that was a little different in as much as when we got to Utah, the small cabin where we were shooting, they had the girl in there in makeup and had me outside in makeup and wouldn't let us meet at all. And there's dialogue between us. But the dialogue coach did the dialogue for her with me. And uh, I was in a big, rough cowboy outfit. And then they even put dirt in the doorway to make me fill the entire doorway. Mm -hmm. uh, so when we shot it, uh, when I busted the door open and she's there, her eyes got very big because she was a very young girl, I think 19 or 20. Uh, and it was a good scene. We had a lot of fun with mm -hmm. it. Uh, well, you got a lot of that work because, I mean, you still do. You're a big man, and you you know jet black hair. You look like a pretty tough hombre. I mean, don't get me wrong. You were a pretty tough hombre, but you also looked like a pretty tough hombre, which helps things. Well, I guess. I guess. But anyway. Uh, but what, so Silverado? You know, you did a bunch of stuff, right? You were on Silverado. Yeah. yeah. I did. I did. Uh, I played Hoyt. <clears throat> mm -hmm. the, the head. Uh, I was the uh, foreman of, the, of uh, the ranch. I was a bad guy, of course. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, I, I got the run of the show from the beginning to the end. Well, Silverado, I remember because a, a bunch of stunt guys went off of Back to the Future, went to do Silverado, finished Silverado, and then came back, and Back to the Future was still going on. <laughs> yeah. Because they fired the guy, and they went to Michael J. Fox and everything, so everybody came back in town, and you show up back on the set. Going, yeah, we did a whole movie. Yeah. We went off and did a whole movie and came back, and that, we're still on this that's one. That's a shot of of uh, Silverado up there with the two guns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, two two pistols that's, blazing. Uh, that, uh, that's when I was on top of the building getting ready to kill Danny Glover. Uh-huh. And when he turns around and shoots me off the back of the building. And Capaloo was a great... Oh, yeah. Cat, well, that's another thing. I would... Well, if you know, I'm a huge Lee Marvin fan. So am I. So if you've got a Cat Balooster, I love hearing about Lee Marvin. Well, Lee and I were in the Marine Corps. 
And, uh, really? Yeah. And uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, but uh, when Lee passed away, they buried him in Arlington. Oh, wow. Uh, Lee, Lee was a good, big, tough Marine. Mm-hmm. I knew he fought in the Pacific and had That's a... Where I was. Oh, were you? Yeah. Well, oh, that was quite a time. I but, was in the 4th Marine Division, South mm-hmm. Pacific. Uh, I was in World War II. Were you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Man, and I'm, 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 I'm running too much of your time, and I have all this South Pacific and Marines well, and everything. But if you d- look over there on the wall... That poster on the wall that says Ted White. Yes. That's from the city of Los Angeles. Los Angeles to Ted White. Hmm? And uh, that tells about my Marine Corps experience. And, and that picture was given to me because I got the Silver Spur Awards. Mm-hmm. And uh, in that tells a little bit about my Marine Corps stuff. And under that is a framed, a framed purple heart. Is a, are those? Uh, is that to you? Or is yeah. that some? That's you. Got, you were yeah. awarded the Purple Heart, huh? Yeah. So um, not only an American tough hombre, an American hero. How about them apples? That's what a lot of people don't know. How uh, do you want to talk about how that happened? I was in the Fourth Marine Division, and uh, when we went overseas, we hit the Marshall Islands first, and we talked quietly no more. And uh, I went through that without a scratch. And when we came back, we were stationed on Maui in the Hawaiian Islands on top of Mount Haleakala in the pineapple field. And we went there to Iwo Jima, and uh, I was in the second wave going ashore. And we had a squad of 12 men. Uh, we had a second lieutenant and a sergeant, and the rest of us were corporals and pilots. And uh, D-Day, about three and a half to four hours after the initial landing, the one radio in our, we were in a crater, came on and uh, it was a captain or a major, I don't remember which uh, I said, uh, let me speak to the officer in charge and I said, he's dead or the sergeant I said, he's gone. He said, how many men are left? I said, there's three of us left and he said, what's your rank? And I said, corporal what's your name? I told him. He said, you're now a second lieutenant and he said I'm sending reinforcements up and they sent reinforcements up and uh I lasted for another couple hours, and I got hit. And uh, they took me to the beach, and then I think it was a couple of three or four hours later, I don't remember, uh, they took me to the hospital ship, USS Comfort, and from there back to Pearl Harbor, where I stayed in the hospital. Was it? Was, did you get shot? Did you hit, hit by shrapnel? I got hit by uh, part of the cement from a blockhouse, some shrapnel, and from a Japanese 25-millimeter machine gun, mm-hmm. legs. But I'm one of the lucky ones that came out of there. Sure. Well, you know, was 7,500 Marines didn't make it. Mm-hmm. And it was a tough campaign. Well, for everyone, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, I've got to let you go. You've been very generous with your time. But we live in, as you, you know, we live in a, a new age of, of movie making, as we've talked about, and doing Fast and Furious. But when when the young person comes to you and says, you know, how do you get in the business? What do you what do you do? Is there a way now, Ted, do you think? Or well, has it kind of really changed so much that who knows how? YouTube videos, kids are making movies on you putting them on the computer and everything? There used to be a way. Uh we we did have uh, two stuntmen that opened up a stuntman school. But the insurance was so high. Insurance was five thousand a month mm-hmm. a month. 
they couldn't hold it together, and they had to disband it, and uh, that was the end of it. And yeah, we have new guys come into the business every day that want to be a stunt man because it's a it's a great life. Uh, it's a hard way to make a living in some respects. In some respects, it's an easy way because some not all stunts are death defying stunts. Right. A lot of stunts you go in and do a saddle fall or simple things that anybody could do really. But there are, there are no schools for them, and uh, if you really take a liking to them, then what you have to do is take them aside, which I've done here and teach him. And uh, uh, I have a very good friend who's passed away now. His son wanted to be a stuntman, and he called me. This was 10 years ago and said, would you do me a personal favor? He was crippled at the time. Would you take my son and teach him? And I said, well, you're asking an awful lot. And I said, you know, uh, I was in my 70s then, and I did. I worked with him for three or four months, and uh, I worked with him with a camera like this one right here, and then afterwards, I showed him the mistakes and how to correct them. Uh, and the, I'm, I couldn't believe this. He got the first show he got was Men in Tights, and he was running it. He wasn't doing stunts. He was running it. So you, not only, you taught him to be a coordinator, huh? He went on that show and coordinated that show. And from that, uh, he started doubling, uh, what's the little guy's name? Uh, Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal. Yeah, he started the little guy. He started building Billy Crystal. Oh, did he? All that where they did the westerns and all that. Sure. Stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he he's gone right on. And uh, as of about five years ago, he said it's getting too tough for me, and he quit. And he buys and sells horses now. How about that? Even the young guys go, "Oh, that's pretty rugged." I don't know. Wow. Yeah, the business has changed, and uh, and it needs an influx of new people. It needs. Young guys, healthy guys, gymnasts, and, and guys that uh, are very active in, in, in outdoor life. Uh, and we need them. We need them desperately because the older guys are fading out just like myself. You know, you're getting too old. You can't do anything anymore. And uh, you really don't want to anymore. You know, the bumps don't go away now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this day. Uh, and let me tell you this. I've enjoyed this conversation, and it's brought back a lot of memories just sitting here talking about it. And it's been my pleasure to do it. Thanks so much, Ted. You know, it really means a lot to people. And I, I hear back from people who listen to people in various corners of the industry that you just don't really hear from. You don't, you don't hear a wonderful story about working with John Wayne as John Wayne's stunt double and rhinos flipping a Jeep that you're riding in. So I'm sure people will be uh, very interested in that. But, the, you know, but just that a, that a, that a good guy from Oklahoma selling cars can end up to have one of the most fascinating lives it really is a wonderful uh, american story i think well i think so too because i've lived it yeah and uh, having lived it and uh, like i said before uh, i wouldn't change it I, I wouldn't change any of it because these memories that's that's all i have left is the eight by tens and memories and uh, yeah uh, and that's enough i don't need any more than that would you ask for a little bit more money for each job now, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. maybe change it a little bit. Just you know, ask yeah. for now, a little thing, bit. The things I did then, if I if I'd have done them today, be twenty times what I charge. Yeah, then. sure, sure. But it's not all money. Uh, no, you get a great satisfaction out of doing what you do. I do. Uh, maybe that's hard for people to understand, but 
when they give you a job to do that nobody else has ever done and you do it, you sleep good that night and the next night and you think about that later on down the line and you meet a lot of your fellow buddies that come up and pat you on the shoulder and say, I never saw anybody do that before. I think you're very right. And as you said, when, you know, if you're part of something that becomes a great shot, it's just very exciting because that lives forever. That's Once that's on film that, and, and it gets in the movie, boy, that's very satisfying. That it worked out. That was a great shot. Also, there's some shots that aren't too credible. Oh, yeah, plenty. <laughs> what? Jeff Chandler, as you know, was gray headed, six foot four. And I got a call to Dublin one day, and I said, uh, you're, you're riding a horse, and uh, you've got to jump, take some jumps on a horse. And I said, oh, well, fine, I'd be glad to do it. And I went over, they grayed my hair, but I was riding an English saddle. So, I get on the horse, and I said, well, I'd like to make a couple of jumps. And they said, well, no, let's, we want to film them. And I said, well, you want me to rehearse it at all? No. And I said, well, fine. Well, I got to the first jump, the left stirrup broke, and I went end over end on the ground. Oh. Well, they said, Ted, if this is the best you can ride, I said, well, if you look over, the left stirrup's gone. I said, I broke it in the middle of the jump. I said, if you put the stirrup on, give me one more chance, I think I can do it. Well, I did do it. But, Jeff, I never heard the end of it from Jeff. He said, you made me look awful bad. Oh, man. <laughs> well, uh, thanks so much for your time, Ted. You're welcome. I, I really do appreciate You're it. You're welcome. And it was, uh, you know, even even years ago, working with a person of your experience and, and you're being a nice guy, it was a thrill back then, and it's all the more a thrill uh, to talk to you today. You know what? It's a thrill for me to see you again. Oh, thanks, after my all friend. all these years. I appreciate it, Ted. Thanks. Well, did I tell you? He's look. It was an hour. It was going over an hour long, and I'm looking at my watch, and I think I can, I haven't even asked the guy about Jason from Friday the Thirteenth. Um, you know, I could have spoken to Ted for hours, and I'm sure they would have been very fascinating hours. But you know, Ted, um, Ted deserves to at at, uh, at his age and experience. Ted deserves for a guy like me to pack up his things so Ted can. Just, you know, have a nice tea and, and relax and enjoy himself. But, but I appreciate Ted's time very much. And I thank Ted White. I thank Mike Bayou for setting it up for me. Thanks to Chris, Katie, everybody at Nerdist Industries. Thanks to Emily Wilson for helping me in production. Um, but thanks to you for listening. Consider subscribing if you haven't subscribed so far or telling a friend about Big Pop Fun. And uh, we will talk to you next time. Bye. Now leaving Nerdist.com.